James, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. I am reading from whatever this Bible is. NIV. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen. Thank you for reading that for us. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to be here once again. And uh, we are starting a new series this evening in the book of James. And the overarching theme that we're going to be looking at in this book of James James is true faith. So as we move through this, uh, please keep that in mind. And um, James emphasizes through this letter that a life truly committed to Christ is a life that can be confirmed by a tenacity to be obedient to God, to follow God's word regardless of the circumstances or difficulties that we may face in life. And so my hope is that as we move through this series, some of you will be able to carry out some of the more practical things that you're going to be challenged with uh, as we move through this, what we um, put, put up at the end of the services, and uh, that we'll be willing to submit to God more and more, that we'll be willing to submit to what He says uh, through His Word. So before we get into this, let's just pause and pray. Father God, thank you so much for your presence with us this evening. Thank you that we've been able to honor and glorify your name through song, through prayer, through gathering around the communion table. And now, Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you to hear from your voice. And Lord, just reveal the truth of your word to us from these 12 verses of James 1. Let us hear what you have to say, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just before we do go on, um, I have to go to the hospital straight after this. Um, uh, there's one of the members of our congregation, uh, those of you who know Margie and Ken from the 8.30 service, their son Wesley is quite ill. Uh, he has been diagnosed with pneumonia. There's a few other things going on. So I'll be heading straight up to the hospital after this. So unfortunately, I won't be around to pray, but there's plenty of other people here who can pray. Uh, so please do stay back. And if you feel the need to pray, I'm sure uh, Pastor Brendan will be more than happy to do that. And there's plenty of others around the place as well. So guys, when we look at what James says here, and in James 1, 1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
And as we begin this book, we notice straight away that the author's James. I mean, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? And most scholars agree that this James is James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that before Jesus died, this James didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. And so something happened between Jesus' death and this point, which convinced James that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And in fact, this James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And they say that his faith was so great, his commitment to God so good, he had calluses on his knees like camels because of the amount that he bowed and kneeled before the Lord in prayer. And we know from history that this James died for his faith. He was thrown from the top of the temple when he refused to say that Jesus was fake. He did, in fact, agree to say that. When they got him up there, he declared Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. They didn't take that well and threw him off. And uh, he died as a result of that. So he's gone from being this non-believer in Jesus to being this incredibly committed, faithful follower. And as I said, he was martyred for that faith. Now he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's an interesting way to name things, isn't it? But Paul names them the 12 tribes so that they realize that even though that they've been scattered, they are part of the promised people of God. It doesn't matter where they are, they haven't lost that unity. They haven't lost that ownership of being part of God's chosen people. And Paul is confirming them as those chosen people of God. They've become the successors to Judaism because they were faithful to go out and his commands. And now that Jesus has come along, they have accepted him as Lord and Savior. It's a statement that includes them as one people united with all believers under the Lordship of Christ. And we think back to Acts chapter 8. There's that terrible persecution that is going on and Saul is empowered to go out into all areas to grab anyone who are followers of the way and to persecute them, to put them in jail, to put them to death, whatever it takes. He has been given authority to do that. And so these people are some of those people who were scattered as a result of that. Only the disciples uh, remained in Jerusalem. And so these guys have been scattered as a result of that. And so they've got nothing. All their possessions possibly would have been left behind because, you know, they had to leave rather rapidly. They've got no home to call their own. And these are the people that James is writing to. They're now in an area where they don't have a lot of friends, quite possibly. They don't have a lot of support. They've got to work out some way that they can work and gain the income that they need in order to live and supply for their families. They don't know who they can trust from day to day because they are being persecuted. And they've still got the day-to-day issues to face on top of all of that. Where do they get shelter? Where do they live? Where are they going to work? And so they're facing all these trials. And James is writing to this people who understand what it's like to be in the midst of trials. And I'm not sure they would have appreciated how James led the start of his letter. In the midst of their struggles and heartaches and pain and everything that is going on, James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And James is writing to people who are possibly in the midst of the greatest suffering that they have ever faced. 
I'm not sure how they would have come together to hear what James has written, but I'd imagine that there would have been this great anticipation, that there would have been these words of wisdom in how they can deal with the current situation and move forward in their lives and things like that. They would have been looking for that guidance from James. And I think the last thing on, the, on their list when they're thinking about the suffering and heartache they had would be, count it all joy. Rejoice. Be glad. Regardless of going, what is going on, regardless of who is chasing you, regardless of what you've lost and left behind, regardless of the fact that you're struggling, count this as all joy. Seriously, who needs enemies, hey? The guy on your side saying things like this. How many of us have had those conversations with people who are no longer living the Christian life and they start off with something like, Charlie, if only you knew how bad he treated me, you would understand why I'm going out with this guy who's not a Christian. Or the other way too, if you only knew how badly she treated me and that's why I'm going out with this non-Christian. If you only knew how that church treated me, then you'd understand why I'm no longer involved. It's like the hardships and the struggles they are facing are adequate excuses to turn away from God. And here James turns that thinking on its head. He says, whatever heartache, whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever struggles, whatever trials, count it all joy. Count your trials all joy. And various kinds, all kinds. And he's saying to count it joy because you will benefit from it. Sometimes those trials are part of the normal day-to-day -day things that we do. Sometimes they're a result of those things that we know we should be dealing with and we're finding it very, very, to, very, very difficult to overcome. These things are unhealthy things in our lives that we know we need to deal with, but it's just so difficult. We're finding it hard to overcome them. And some of them are the attacks of the evil one. Don't always say it is the devil. I don't think it is a lot of the time. I think it's our own personal choices, but sometimes it actually is. But in all of these things, if we trust and lean on God, the experience will not be wasted. In verse 3, we see that it tells us that testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And the root of the meaning of testing here is approved character. That's what the Greek word actually means. So when we consider that we see that the testing of believers' faces so they will become the approved character that Jesus desires them to be, we've, we've given this opportunity, we've given our lives to Christ, we are called to be like Him. As Jesus Himself started His ministry, what happened? He was led out into the desert and He was tempted for 40 days. He overcame all those temptations. He was strengthened for the ministry that was, He was to face. And if we, confess faith in, if we confess faith in Jesus, then why do we think it's going to be any different for us? Why do we think our lives are going to be lives where we don't face temptations? And I'm really hoping that it's not the case anymore amongst Christian circles, but I know when I was growing up, when I was about 18 or 19, which was a terribly long time ago. Yeah, I kid you not. How long ago was that? 30-odd years. Wow. That's pretty scary. But when I was growing up as a young Christian, there was this whole theology, false theology, I must say, where we were told that Jesus loves us. That's true. But when Jesus loves you and you come to Jesus because he loves you, he's going to make everything better. If you've got financial difficulties, don't worry, come to Jesus. He's going to make that so much better. If you've got health issues, don't worry, come to Jesus. He's going to make that better. If you've got relationship issues, don't worry, come to Jesus. He's going to make that better. 
It doesn't matter what you're facing. You come to Jesus, he's going to make it all better. Your life is now going to be so awesome. You're going to have no problems at all. Is that still said today by some people? It is. Oh, wow, that's scary. If I ever say that to you, just belt me one, will you? It's just simply not true. It is simply not true. And the thinking that they had was that, well, they still have, obviously, is that in coming to Jesus, we will have lives which will make everything better. We will have lives which will make us happy. But we aren't called to follow Jesus so we can have happy lives. We're called to follow him so we can have holy lives. And when we think about the word testing here, it's also a word that was used by silversmiths in the day. And what would happen, they would get this vessel and they'd put this silver in it and they'd melt it down. And when it reached a certain temperature, all the rubbish would rise to the top and they'd look in and they'd scoop that off the top. And then they'd put it back in the fire, they'd heat it up again and more of that rubbish would come to the top and they'd scoop that off. And they'd keep doing this process over and over until eventually when they looked down upon the silver they saw a perfect image of their own face. It perfectly reflected them. And so when we talk about this testing here, this is the testing that Jesus puts in our life and the testing is done so he purifies us. So ultimately when he looks upon us, come that day when we'll stand in his presence and his glory, he will see himself reflected. That's what he wants for each one of us. And so he's going to put us through the trials and testing. The rubbish is going to float to the top. And you've got a choice then to flick it aside and say, Lord, I know that's not of you. Please take that from me. Let me be the man of God you want me to be. Let me be the woman of God you want me to be. And he's going to test you again. He's going to purify you. And come that day, he's going to look upon you. And he's going to be reflected. That's the call upon our life. To live a life for Jesus and to perfectly reflect him. Of course, we don't attain that perfection here on this earth. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could? But those trials that come our way are refining us. And if we allow Jesus to be part of this journey with us, he'll continue to refine us. And we'll become more and more like him each and every day with each and every trial. And this is the call on our lives, to reflect our Lord and Saviour, and that's what it says in verse 4. Lest steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this testing that comes does so, that again, we will stand in his presence, perfect and complete. We will lack nothing. That's what this scripture says. And I believe this tells me the things that come against me are unpleasant. Some of them are just flat out nasty and mean. Some of them hurt us physically, mentally. But as all of God's plans and purposes come together, as we look back over our lives, each and every one of them made them more like Jesus. If we cling to him, he refines us. He draws us to himself. And I wish that, as I've said that, you'll go, hallelujah, now I can stand firmly against all those trials and temptations that come my way. But it's simply not true, is it? I struggle. It'd be awesome if we could 
stand against those things. But reality tells us that there will be times when we wonder what God is doing. And so in the midst of everything, we should be speaking to God. We should ask him for his wisdom. And this isn't the wisdom of the world. This is godly wisdom. Look at what James 5 says, 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. When we consider what is said about wisdom in the New Testament, it's generally talking about understanding God's plan and purposes. And the God-given wisdom is that determination to not only understand what God is calling us to do and our, plan, our, our place in these plans and purposes, but to live in according, accordingly in obedience to God's call on our lives. So in the context of this message, James is telling us and instructing us that if we don't understand or have the wisdom to know what we are facing these trials for, what is actually going on, then we should ask God. And if we do, then God will provide us what we need to understand the situation that we are in. With wisdom like this from God, we can cope with the trials that we face. Godly wisdom allows us to have a view of our trials and to have His perspective. And we realize that even the difficult circumstances that we're facing there is the potential or opportunity for God to be glorified. And if we come, humbly come before God and ask Him to increase our wisdom or give us His wisdom, verse 5 tells us He will do so generously and without reproach. But there's a condition. We shouldn't doubt. Don't doubt. And James has told us about the character of God, how He's willing to give us whatever we need in order that our lives will honour Him, but now he wants to deal with individuals who don't receive the wisdom they need. He says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. We're called to ask God for what we need without doubt. We have to be men and women who, when we pray, believe that God hears us, and then he answers us according to his will and purposes. And the imagery that he uses here to describe those who do doubt is a wave which forms and breaks in whatever direction the wind blows it. And there's a similar idea expressed back in Ephesians. And this is talking about our maturity. And it also says that we may attain the full knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's all about our maturity as Christians. Our prayers must be prayers of faith. We must believe what has been said here in James, that God does not hesitate to give us. It's us who hesitates to ask. And the faith that has been spoken about here is the type of faith that does not hesitate to ask God for what is needed. It is a faith that is manifested in action. When we doubt, it has this stifling effect on us. And I think I've shared with you before, God's asked me to do some pretty crazy things, and I've done some of them. And I was walking through Carindale, and uh, this guy was in a wheelchair coming towards me, and God said, I want you to go up and pray for his healing. I didn't do it. That, that was just madness. That was just crazy. 
I was afraid nothing would happen. And is that my call? It's not. God called me to pray for that guy. I mean, how awesome would it have been if I had the faith just to walk up and say to this guy, hey, God's just told me to pray for you. I'm just going to pray for you, man. Let's see what happens. And I just prayed for him. This guy went, what? And got up and walked away. I mean, how awesome would that be? But we'll never know if that's what God was going to do. How much more awesome would have it been if I had gone up there and I had prayed for this guy and said, God's just told me to pray for your healing. And I, I laid hands on him and I prayed for him and nothing happened. I went, hey, man, this is in God's hand. Let's wait and see what happens in the future. God told me to pray for you. Let's see what happens. And wouldn't it be awesome if I get to glory and that guy that I prayed for is actually standing there and, you know, he goes, you know what? I didn't actually live locally. I didn't know who you were. I couldn't come and see you. He said, but a year or so later, I suddenly got healed. And I believe it's because you prayed for me. We're going to have witnesses like that in heaven because we've done something crazy and we didn't see the result because that's not in our hands. That's in God's hands. We're just called to be people of faith who do what God has called us to do. I didn't do it. Our faith comes not because of who we are, what we can do, but because of who God is and what he has done. And true faith, the ability ability to trust God, comes when we understand who he is. And here in this first section of James, God is portrayed as the one who gives freely and generously. When we consider God in the context of Scripture, He's continuously portrayed as the one who means what He says. God always accomplishes His purposes. He's called us to be His children. He has poured His love and grace upon us. And if we understand that, if we appreciate who we are in Christ and all that God has done for us through Jesus, then what we have read is not just about believing God He is, and answers us but it's a higher call to live out the will of God the will of our Father and yes we are all going to stumble and fall at times but those of us who genuinely seek after God it should be our desire to be in his will at all times so when we fall down we get up again and every time we fall down we get up again and we go back to him and we confess and we ask him for his strength and his wisdom and his help to do what needs to be done. What we need to realize though is that there are others being spoken about here as well. And these are people who have the appearance of faith. James 1, 7 and 8 says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And commentators agree that James is talking about someone who is constantly changing allegiances. This person has the appearance of being a person of faith, but they're just going through the motions. They don't actually have that genuine relationship with God. It's a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. And as a result, they end up double-minded. They're swayed so easily. They waver between belief and the world. They want the best of both. And in attempting to live that way, they become unstable in everything. And everything is affected in their lives. Their spirituality, their relationships with, their work, with others, their work ethics, everything suffers. And they're people who never commit fully one way or the other. They're fence sitters. And the problem is there's no fences in heaven. 
And when we're called as Christians, we're called to be fully committed to Him, obeying all He commands us and seeking to live in His will each and every moment of each and every day. And we must stand on the promises of God's Word and not only believe what it says, but live it. So what does this mean for us? When we think about testing, what do we think about our testing and trials? If we have that genuine relationship with God, do we have that attitude that whatever we are facing is from Him and it will refine us and making us more like Jesus so we're actually okay with it? I'm not. I still struggle. Are we willing to say or pray, Lord, whatever it takes, bring it. Give it to me because I want to be like you. We're in the midst of the heartache, the trials, the testing and the struggles. Is it hard to keep the end goal in mind? Like James says, everything's going to be okay. Just trust God, lean into him. God's got this and he wants you to be complete. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I find some of these verses incredibly challenging. I find them very difficult, and this is one of them. And I don't know how you read this. I don't know what you see when you read that. And when I read that and I think about some of the trials I faced, this to me says that for those who've stood, remained steadfast under trial, who stand firm, they're the ones that receive the crown of life. Those who remain steadfast are the ones who love Jesus. And I find that very difficult. We're not here for a good time. We're here to obey God. We're here to persevere when that obedience brings us trials and opposition. And when we do, we'll receive the crown of life. A crown that says we continue to love Jesus even in the most difficult times. And I have a few challenges for us, a few things that I think we should try and do as a result of what we've heard from James this evening. Some of us have this habit of complaining about our lot, the things that are going on in our lives. And some of us just do that continuously. I'm not singling anyone out. But James tells us that we should count that as all joy, pure joy. And so if you're one of those people who sometimes always speaks about the negative and things like that, I want you to think about the people that you usually go to because usually you have some who will sit and listen and pray with you and encourage you i want you to think about those people and i'm asking you to contact them this week i'm asking you to just touch base with them once more or not once more do this a lot and instead of unloading on them instead of venting to them can you just tell them one thing that god has done in your life that's actually good can you tell them about how god has moved in such a way that you know it's god and just encourage them in the midst of the negativity they've taken, that God is doing a work in your life. And tell them about how God's helping you grow, even though there's so much stuff that's come against you. I don't know how many of you journal. I struggle with journaling. Praise God, I've been able to journal for quite some time now. 
But if you don't journal, please consider journaling. journaling. And trust me, just vent there. Just write out all the rubbish that's going on in your life, the things that you find difficult. If you're questioning God, write that out as well. And just basically just have a spew tank. Just write it all out. And then come back to it the next day. And look at what is actually written there. And just make some notes on how God might be growing you in that situation. What is God doing right at that time where he might be able to put a positive spin on some of those negative things that you've seen? And ask him to help you. Ask him to encourage you in the midst of that. This week, when you pray, think about some of those you know who are going through difficulties. Pray for them. And ask God to grow them through whatever they're facing, that they will come out a better person than what they were before those difficulties started. And finally, think about those people around you, even tonight, those Christian men and women. You might have noticed them step out in faith and do something for the very first time, something that was very, very difficult for them. You might have noticed them growing spiritually. They might have started talking about the passages of Scripture they're reading during the week. They might have said something encouraging to you that just let you see that they are following God in their own way as much as they can. And what I'm asking you to do is just encourage that person. Just tell them that you've seen God in their life and you want them to continue to grow in maturity with the Lord and that they should keep going, that you're encouraged by the fact that they're committed to our Lord and Saviour. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word from James this evening. Thank you, it's such a powerful book. And Lord, I just pray that some of those challenges have resonated with people and that they want to do that, Lord, so we can become more united as one people. So Lord, we can be spurring each other on the faith, on, in faith, Lord. And Lord, we are going to face trials. There's people gathered here tonight who are facing terrible trials, Lord. And I just pray that in the midst of those trials, Lord, they will be able to see your hand. They'll be able to acknowledge that even though it's difficult, you are there loving and supporting and carrying them, Lord. Will you just come around them? Will you build them up in the faith, Lord? Will you bring Christian men and women around them, Lord, who can just spur them on and tell them that you're present? More than anything, Lord, we need more of you. We want more of you. Strengthen my faith, Lord. Strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.